Hello and welcome to the AdNog podcast, the podcast for the Adelaide.net user group. I'm your host, David Gardner. This is a recording of our October 2016 meeting. This month we're joined by Stav Morris and his team from A Backbone Solutions. As Stav talks about Can You Hack It? Unbreakable Data Security and a Hackathon as well. And now, over to Stav. Um, thanks for coming along, everyone. It's uh, nice to have some familiar faces and some new people here. So, yeah, half an hour. Let's say half an hour. We'll, we'll, we'll do a bit of chit chat afterwards. Um, so, why are we here? Why are we all doing this? Um, I suppose we're, we're bolted straight into it. So. Eight whole years ago, we started developing a product for the financial market, a secure credit card, so to speak. And um, we wound up uh, traveling the world trying to sell it and found absolutely no market for it because we demanded a type of security that simply didn't exist, well, to the knowledge of anyone in the industry in any case. So this is hide and not seek, Hans and DB. I think Andrew's in the room, whatever he's disappeared to. Wave, Andrew. Um, Andrew's been helping me uh, develop the code. It's very rough at this stage. It's barely functional, but it is there. We have achieved something. Um, So where are you guys? There you go. So the idea of tonight is not really to break the terrible second-hand computer sitting over there. It's to get an idea if um, the theory that we've developed actually works logically and if you guys think it can actually be executed in code, which is really what the important part here is, because um, at some stage... Uh, see, right? Couldn't make it. Anyway, at, at some stage... Um, a few people in this room have actually helped us uh, get some uh, direction on the coding. Um, what we've got over there is a very basic setup in Python, uh, on, based on the research that I've done since. C Sharp is a nice way to go. Um, a lot of security programmers are going for F Sharp now, and I'm told that's because of uh, secure data types, uh, specifically the way variables are stored in memory. So, fun things that I've learned. Um, Anyway, let me go through the formal spiel. As of last month, we are a backbone computing solution, proprietary limited, and um, to that end, we're uh, going a little bit serious on this product. Uh, this is trademarked as of a couple of hours ago. So, we discovered over in America that um, banks and, uh, well, Big business didn't really take uh, identity security, information technology security very seriously. Uh, remaining nameless, uh, big big credit carriers uh, consider a, a tertiary consideration. So top of the hill is their bottom line. Secondary consideration is how their brand looks, how their product looks, and is their customer service any good? And to a large extent, they use their customer service to cover off the fact that they lose one to one and a half percent of their turnover through fraud. 
in America specifically, that pales to insignificance against what they're, lo what they're losing in uh, double spend and stale transactions. So you go out and use your credit card in America and it can take two weeks to remit that transaction. Uh, that in itself is a problem to be solved, and yes, we address that as well. And uh, the elephant in the room is blockchain and Bitcoin, and that's something that developed uh, pretty much in parallel. I think back in 2009, they were starting off as well as, as, as were we. We really didn't become very aware of it until we traveled to America in 2015, where people were just starting to take blockchain seriously as well. Um, so, no, not the slide. What are we trying to do here? Buzzword in America right now is unhackable, uh, thanks to Hillary Clinton and her uh, supposed unhackable email system. But when we tore apart the credit card transaction system, uh, we, we discovered there's, there's many opportunities for fraud and the system wasn't really designed to protect from someone making a dedicated attack uh, going after information or fraudulent transactions. So we established some base criteria Whatever we built had to be, what is the word I've used here, it's not unhackable, unbreakable. Uh, incorruptible uh, is an important one, so data in stays there, doesn't go stale, doesn't get destroyed, doesn't get edited. Um, had to be scalable, um, something that even blockchain is running into difficulties with. As they uh, try to expand their networks, they're having to redevelop how their distribution works. Um, had to be simple. Um, our simplest uh, implementation of this, we shrunk it down and ran it on some orange pies. Had the whole thing running at about uh, 38 watts with uh, four units, and we hit over a remote connection about 12,500 transactions a second on that one. Um, so it's going to be fast and it's going to work on multiple disciplines. So this can't just be something where you put financial transactions in. To that end, we've been consulting with a few people recently. We've been looking at getting it to work for uh, media, so audio and uh, video recordings and uh, documents as well. So. Um, it's probably a lot of people in here familiar with uh, NoSQL concepts, uh, blob storage, all that kind of stuff. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll get into why that's important later. So the priorities were no remote commands. So that's no SSH terminal, no remote login, no administration by remote. Um, on top of that, we're approaching a point now where we can actually lock away interactive logins as well. So that means uh, no access from the console itself. Um, the, the rolling code over there, which is the, the premise for, for what we're building, is all born from a single block of code, so it can be replicated from uh, a single source. Uh, when it's born, they get uh, paired to each other or into a, a functioning system. The nodes pick up an identity and the rest of the system will essentially tell them what their function is. Um, again, we'll get into why that's important later on. So the final emphasis is for auditing and recovery. Um, rather than 
repair tools because what we're essentially dealing with at this stage is just some files on a hard drive. The system has been designed for replacement rather than repair. If a node is corrupted or damaged, you take it out, you replace it with another one, the rest of the nodes repair it. Anyone who's familiar with RAID systems, you know, recognize the methodology. And what we're trying to do here is apply something similar to RAID over a wide area network and eliminating a lot of the traffic that goes with it. So this is all about data ownership. Um, they're not changing it. We're still we're still on the slide. Um, this is all about data ownership, and one of the things we discovered is that people can't really be trusted with their own data. So, you know, you know people at home every day log on their computers, enter in their details, log into their internet banking. There's usernames and passwords going everywhere, and a lot of people don't really know when it's secure, how to secure it, um, you know, when and when not to use those details to supposedly authenticate yourself. But, there's a good scam coming over the telephone right now. Um, I had a recorded message yesterday. Uh, they were telling me it was the tax office. Uh, I had committed tax fraud. I was going to end up in jail. The lady had a lovely British accent and told me to you know, dial a number and give them the details and whatnot. And it's exactly that kind of context we're trying to eliminate here by essentially being able to lock your identity away in a secret place where if someone is authorized to have access to it, they can access it. They can't necessarily see what's inside, but they can interact with it. Um, all right, we'll uh, push on with the slides. So, like I said before, this is this is a bottom line problem. It, it's not that people don't want to go secure; it, it's that it's not financially sensible to do so yet. You've got a credit card industry that I think on personal credit cards, not including business spends, uh, reached one and a half trillion dollars last year. And their losses are still down at about one to one and a half percent, and that's growing at about one percent a year. Uh, in some markets where security and education is quite low, that's that's closer to growing at ten percent a year. So part of the problem there is not enough people know that they're insecure, and not enough people know that their data is being shared without their permission. And for the ones that do know, uh, there's not enough of them, and their voice isn't strong enough. They're they're not going to influence someone like say Visa for instance, um, we know PayPal was making big strides in the right direction, they've uh, put that on the back burner for now because again they're focusing on brand and product. So here's where we dived in and uh, tried to tear apart the existing infrastructure. As we, we covered before, data entry. Uh, Data goes in and out. It's, uh, it's your mobile phone. It's your home computer. It's when you're standing in front of any FT machine, or you're, um, you know, at the bank dealing with the teller. Uh, there's another good anecdote. Bank SA, probably five years ago now, uh, someone had downloaded a program and it was installed on one of the bank clerk's desktops. So the desktop was connected to the internet and to the bank's internal banking system as well. So that, that's just a but that's a silly thing to do. So the hackers were logging on at five minutes past five when everyone had gone home and they were initiating a false transaction. A fake $10,000 would come across the counter. Uh, the user's very poor PIN number would be used to authorize the transaction. $10,000 would go into their account, come out of their account, and it would get moved elsewhere. They would, go in, they would then go in through the back end 
and delete any evidence of the transaction. So according to Bank SA, nothing had happened. In the meantime, this person had distributed, I think, over $2 million before they even caught on to the fact that they were out of balance. So data entry is a, uh, a, a, a big factor in this, and it, it's not just usernames and passwords. This, uh, this goes to authority as well. Um, when you have someone who is supposed to have authority but is operating on a system that isn't sufficiently well planned or well designed, then you open up avenues for you know, that kind of fraud. Um, I was going to talk more on the data transmission, but I think we'll skip over that one. Uh, I will make a comment, though, that that's, that's the weakest of our disciplines, and we are deliberately leaving that till last because we are investigating what you can actually do if the data is secure in storage. Um, how much of that data can you now allow out without encryption? What other types of authentication and round-robin or closed-loop systems can you implement um, without the need to encrypt the communication. So if anyone wants to talk on that later on, we'll have a bit, of, a bit more of a talk on that. Data storage is mainly what we're about. The, uh, the system is essentially designed such that you can put information in there. There's predefined sets of rules, predefined operations. We're getting to the stage now where we've got uh, a toolbox whereby you can build functionality into the database. But because of the way the data is managed, you can't just send it an instruction and say, I want all this data and pump it out to my console. Um, whilst you can add output methods to it, the way the data in the database is linked to how it gets out means that you can't just get any old information without going through a privacy filter and it won't just go anywhere without informing someone or at least informing you that someone wants to make a new transaction with you on your account, so on and so forth. Uh, data sharing is a good one. Um, so this is... Newsletters, subscription, your gym membership, um, you know, what did you sign up for, who did you leave your details with, and what have they done with it subsequently? Maybe they had good intentions, maybe they put it into their computer and uh, likely encrypted that with a uh, password and assumed that that would be safe, but they had a, I guess a Trojan is applicable here as well, so someone's watching them whilst they're sitting at their computer pumping their password in and out, and that gives them access to their mailing list, and at their convenience they download the mailing list, they don't use it for a few years, but your name and email and mobile phone number are now in someone else's mailing list, uh, and probably you didn't want that. The data usage is uh, probably still lingering in everyone's mind. Um, census was a month and a half ago. So census would have been a really good exercise um, for us to implement the technology on. It's definitely a context where you want data to go in. You want to be able to do meaningful work on that data, but you needn't necessarily see the data. You need to know what it is, but you want to know some qualities about it. So it's within the functionality of uh, the toolkits to do, not scavenging so much, but for, for different reasons, but let's just call it some data scavenging or some data mining, collecting some meaningful statistics about it and representing those statistics to uh, an operator on that network but that operator need never actually see the information that's in the database. Okay, we'll use privacy to talk about this one. So when you enter your information in, you may have different levels of paranoia. You don't really care if people know your first name and your email address, so you put that in the database and you say, fine, that's public. Anyone who wants to add me to a mailing list, they can have my details, they can have my first name and my email. 
your mobile phone number, your postal address, you want those to be private. So people who you authorize to have access to those, like the postal service or a courier, or if someone wants to get in touch with you, they can go via the database and use it to dial a connection essentially between you, but they never need actually know your mobile phone number. Then you might have secret information. You've got shares and bonds and leases and things that you put into the database, and you really don't want them to ever come out again. But as the holder of that information, you can do a challenge against the content. So as long as you have an authentic copy presented to the database, the database can return and say, yep, that's exactly what's in your file. Um, obviously, the database needs to be sufficiently trustworthy such that the yes-no answer can actually be validated. And uh, again, there's existing methods to um, you know, confirm that level of access. With the security, and this is, a, this is another thing where there's direct relations between what we're doing and blockchain, it's a decentralization and um, diffusion model, I guess. The model we have sitting over there, what we're working on at the moment, basically relies on sharding the data between all the nodes in the system, such that you need a minimum number of nodes to actually reassemble a, some meaningful data. Uh, people who are familiar with um, RAID know that if you've got a set of disks, you might have two disks worth of redundancy and 10 other disks with the data distributed across them, uh, to use a simple definition. So in the same way, if you had 12 nodes in a system and you had specified four nodes of redundancy, you would need at least eight of the nodes to reconstruct whatever information was in the system. So that means physical access. Uh, because of the way the system is arranged, we either need to capture information coming off of the network, which, yes, you could do, but you could have to capture it from at least eight nodes at once, reassemble it, and then try and get the information out of it. Um, otherwise, the challenge really is one of physical access, and if you take into account the ability to turn offline nodes stale and rotate the data on the network such that if a node goes off for a given time, could be an hour, could be a day or a week, that node um, can't be re-included back into the network. So even if you make off with subsequent nodes, they won't necessarily give you a meaningful representation of the information you're looking for. So the data ownership, um, how many digital versions of yourself are there on the internet? How many separate accounts do you have? How many separate passwords for all of them? Uh, how many times does that information overlap? And, uh, to that end, how many of those do you actually want to be anonymous? And this is something that you would have to design into the network if you wanted anonymous access. Um, yeah, it raises a complication, but that's a that's a that's a, a policy issue rather than anything else. And the other thing is expectation. What do you expect of your data? What do you expect of your data carrier, your bank, the database, your taxes are, are helping? the information that was stored on the census, what were their expectations, and what is the reality of what's happened to that data? Um, you know, where do the opportunities lie? One of the things we are trying to eliminate is administration. So if the network can run autonomously and has no need for repair, it has a minimum need for administration. You can obviously optionally enable administration if that's how you want to build it. But we're getting to the point now where the network can look after itself. Uh, the data essentially is owned by the network on behalf of you. And so long as you've established your 
privacy criteria when the data goes in, those are some things that will never change. So you need one identity, you store it once, everything you want to subscribe to, everything you want to participate in is represented by that base identity. And to that end, that identity is distributed across the network. So everyone in here is pretty much from the existing methods uh, discipline. So who is working in this field with databases, with uh, administration? You can obviously optionally enable administration if that's how you want to build it. But we're getting to the point now where the network can look after itself. Uh, the data essentially is owned by the network on behalf of you. And so long as you've established your privacy criteria when the data goes in, those are some things that will never change. So you need one identity, you store it once, everything you want to subscribe to, everything you want to participate in is represented by that base identity. And to that end, that identity is distributed across the network. So everyone in here is pretty much from the existing methods uh, discipline. So who is working in this field with databases, with uh, you know, permission-based structures, with uh, data security? Show of hands. No one? Okay, yes. Uh, Jeffries? Andrew, how are you doing? Um, so what we have over there is enabled together out of bits of Linux and things you download from a package manager and some second-hand computers. And it can demonstrate, at the minimum, a no-admin, no-access, no-edit database. What we have over there is very simple. You can register a name, you can drop a document in it, and you can demonstrate that things like your mobile phone number can remain concealed. And that's probably a genuine 100 hours worth of work. It's probably more than that. I, I won't comment on that because um, Andrew Fosbach's done a great deal of work on it, and it's uh, in its third generation. Uh, we do have a uh, third prototype that's modded over there. That's the second prototype. So let's talk blockchain briefly. Is anyone in here doing blockchain work? Uh, there were going to be a few people coming along who were directly uh, involved in blockchain stuff, uh, neck deep in it. Um, one of them is a friend of mine who is using the Bitcoin blockchain to remit credit from abstracts like uh, phone credit or airtime, and he's taken that to Africa, and that is now a functional transaction network where you can use a candy bar phone and SMS messages to trade value between people nearly instantaneously. So that, that is a very clever implementation of existing technology whereby his asset is not at risk because it only touches the uh, Bitcoin blockchain temporarily. Transaction goes in, transaction goes out, you've got a remittance network there, and the balance is stored by proxy on the actual mobile phone. The mobile phone is represented by a private key. And herein lies the major difference between what we're trying to achieve and where blockchain stops. If you lose your private key, you've lost your data. There's not a good way to recover it. Um, people who want to trade anonymously, if you want to catch them in the act, you need to catch them with those keys intact so that you can actually unlock their transactions and see what they've got in there. And in that manner, I don't think we've seen anything coming out of blockchain technology yet that offers a complete solution. 
uh, a lot of the issues, uh, the Ethereum hack recently, based on the fact that the method in which people stored their private keys was still essentially a key-based or username and password-based system that was compromised, keys were lost, money was lost, information is essentially orphaned in that blockchain, which is essentially stuck there. But I know they're redesigning to, to now essentially be able to erect to erase or retire blocks. And then there's the last one. Can uh, can you? accurately speculate the effect of quantum computing and, and uh, what's to come. A friend of mine in America who is doing his PhD in quantum computing, and this is pure speculation, um, so he tells me a an end-way stack in quantum computer, that is one where a singular node can represent six states, can communicate with six adjacent nodes, each of which communicates six states to six more adjacent nodes. And such a system is capable of doing predictive uh, hashing, such that it can see a branch that is not going to yield meaningful hashes and eliminate it very early on in the iteration sequence. If they can do that, that's problematic for existing methods of encryption and hashing. So, volume of the problem. Ten years ago, possibly one person in your house had a computer and maybe each of you had a mobile phone. Uh, in ten years' time, there'll be more than ten computers for every person on the planet. That's IoT, that's biomedical sensors, environmental sensors, uh, you name it. It's going to have a computer that's connected to an internet, that's got data on it, that's being transmitted somewhere. Um, so there's diversity there, both in discipline and geography. It's going to be in more places doing more things. Um, the next comment, danger flows downstream. Sorry, I've got an online question from Intel. Yes. America. Um, so uh, they're asking, they're finding this interesting. They, um, they, they want to hear more about the similarities between our products and blockchain. We'll get to that. That's going to be the long commentary at the end of the conversation. I will, I will get back to that. Um, ignore the danger flows downstream. Basically, someone sells you a database product, you operate the database product, your customers get the, you know, the short end of the stick. It's your responsibility to fix it on their behalf, but you know, what is the company who sold you the database doing to fix it on your behalf? Um, losses in this area are now affecting consumer confidence. And consumer confidence is the the buzzword at the moment. It's the market that uh, disruptive banks, disruptive technology makers are trying to break into. They're trying to get people away from their traditional banks, from their traditional method of doing business even, and uh, you know, generate a new type of consumer confidence. Problems with blockchain make it difficult to get ahead of that industry. You've got a blockchain product which might be perfectly good, someone else has got a blockchain product which isn't so good. A consumer hears the word blockchain failure and you know that's going to scare them away. So to that end, we've really not pushed to get a product out yet because we want to make sure that when we close the front door, everything has been considered. Um, so yes, is it reasonable to have a magic box? At the moment, what that does is essentially have a singular port open as a socket to which you pass what is essentially text that gets dropped in a buffer. 
Um, what we designed it correctly, that will be a nice signal buffer, which we hope can be filled much faster than the bandwidth available to the device. Um, in that end, we are trying to do a uh, denial of service uh, fix as well. The database engine reads the information out of the text buffer if it finds something meaningful in there and it's got a valid transaction and you've got to process that on the network. The nature of how the network functions is that you can't edit something that's not supposed to be edited. Every transaction is journal, so it is very much a ledger style system. Um, right. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to that later on. So, how this is going to operate is, uh, again, not something we've considered on the network comms end, because uh, someone very cleverly brought up the problem yesterday of, if you're going to do it this way, you can't use TCP transmissions. So, ah, yes. Um, but, being that it does communicate in a circular fashion, I think we can get away with the UDP, Unicast, and things of that nature, um, I'll talk more on the database engine when we get to comparing it with uh, blockchain, but I think you've got the, the main components right now. There's fixed functions on the inside. You need to match your operation from the outside with whatever functions are available on the inside, and they will only achieve things based on the rules that govern the system. So if you've got a journaling system where nothing needs to be overwritten, everything is appropriate. So system will come up and give you a warning when you're running out of storage space, you just add more nodes to it, it uh, figures out where the next storage is to go and continues on working. Um, speaking to Scalable, and we had a very brief discussion with some Amazon Web Services people the other day, this lends itself very nicely to um, uh, cloud-type products, uh, Elastic Expansion. Uh, in terms of storage and uh, compute power as well. So if you find you've got a lot of CPU intensive tasks and you don't need a lot of storage, you spin up more instances, they can store stuff locally, and when the CPU demand spins down, they consolidate that information uh, onto a smaller set of uh, nodes, and you turn off whatever's not needed. Anyone who works in the cloud has already figured that you've got to be in this space to keep your costs down. What we were discussing with Amazon um, last week, is a, a dead man service, a dead man switch. Can you cast a VM out into the internet such that if someone gains access to your account, deletes your account, and tells the VM to go bin itself, the VM will sit there and keep working for so long as you have specified the dead man switch should stay alive. So let's say it gives you 30 days. If you have an impression of this VM in something like a database that uh, can't be looked inside. You re-establish your account, you drop a backup of this VM, or you find it by its impression, you tell the system, this is my VM, it checks your account details, sees that the impression of the VM matches and says, right, that clearly belongs to you, you put that back into the service and reset the clock on the dead man switch. To that end, if we can work something like that and have a hybrid cloud with physical nodes distributed across a large geography to prevent simultaneous access, and then a cloud service keeping the thing alive even if all the physical nodes go down and someone tries to attack the system and take all the virtual nodes down, we can speculate later as to how you might go about destroying the functionality of that system. So, 
This is roughly what it looks like inside. To protect the unit itself, um, anyone who's installed something on a uh, EFI, UEFI system knows that the motherboard and the CPU and something like a trusted platform module, they're working together to make sure that the code on the hard drive um, is consistent. So if someone does try to modify the boot block or an area of the disk you've told it to keep checksummed, uh, the system will summarily fail and stop booting. At that level of security, we can pretty much guarantee that if a node turns on and tries to connect to the network, that it's still got the correct information in it and no one has added anything extra to it. You may speculate on that when we get to it. Um, the functions toolbox, um, and this is, uh, this is definitely a, a talking point for you guys, because we theorize that you can build sufficient functions and arrange them in such a fashion that you can add functionality without uh, compromising the privacy and integrity of the system, but we haven't done it. So I'd like to hear from you guys if that's even possible. Um, how this works is less important than what it actually does. There was to be a second diagram outlining what we actually have, but I can tell you that on one side you have a client, which essentially is just, you know, here I am, what can I do? So we connect to the network and say, give me a list of what I can do. That list may be based on who you are, what device you've got it on, where you are geographically. That client, we hope, can connect via the internet. That is the ultimate goal, so we can turn this thing into an app that can sit on a mobile phone or an IoT device. Um, via the internet, that talks to our buffer system, whereby the instructions go in and get dropped into text, essentially, so that there is no actual uh, negotiating for control of system services. Uh, from the buffer, the database engine does all its work. It checks its uh, function toolbox to see if it can actually get the data out. Once it's got the data you've requested assembled, it uh, compares it in, uh, you know, essentially a privacy table. Uh, what have I nominated that can go out? So if a merchant is asking for my details and he wants them SMSed to his mobile, I've said, yes, you can have my first name, you can have my email, you can't have my phone number, and I won't tell you my postal address yet, but you can have a copy of the inventory that I have with your shop so that they can see what it is I've tried to purchase from them. So they can have that information SMS to them so long as we've agreed on that sort of privacy. Um, you may boggle in your mind how that expands into a uh, larger scale. So the way stuff gets out of the network is essentially by separate output modules, such that each output module, when defined, has to be subscribed to by each user or operator in order for it to match up in the privacy table. So if you're not subscribed to the output module, then your information can't be sent out via that output module, and it essentially can't be dropped to a target that you haven't specified already. Um, so essentially what we're trying to do here today is compare what we're plotting here to what's existing now and what people are doing with blockchain technologies. And I guess the main commentary on that is, yes, we're both distributed, yes, we're both decentralized. If something breaks in a blockchain transaction, if your private key goes missing, then that data is largely gone. There's not a good avenue for recovery yet. Whatever avenue for recovery you put there surely has to compromise the meaning of that network when it was established. Um, a different end, and this is something banks are encountering right now, is blockchains were intended to be public and distributed, such that there wasn't a 
a single party of influence, uh, which they call the 51% rule. If you are a banking entity and you have influence over every machine that is governing your blockchain, you do have the ability to affect the voting on the network. Um, in that fashion, you can actually change the outcome of the transactions. Um, again, they may be able to sort the way around this, but it is fundamental to the intent behind blockchain. Um, in terms of us, because essentially uh, our network seeks to bury the keys inside the system, such that whatever happens to the data, regardless if it is an authorized transaction or an unauthorized transaction, there is no loss of data, there is no change in the data, the data can't be redirected to a different entity, and um, there was another point, I've lost it, we'll come back to that. Excuse me one second. So the idea is to find a reliable, repeatable mechanism for accessing the data. And we think this is biometrics, even though somebody tells me there are people right now studying methods of building an artificial face with uh, you know, built-in 3D printed channels to pump a warm fluid to, to replicate the infrared pattern of a person's face. So this is where it becomes really important. If you're gonna get biometric data, what are you gonna do with it? If the network is as good as we think it is, you can lock the full impression of that away and use it for challenge authentication. Even if the network is not as good as we think it is, you can lock the impression of that away and use a mechanism for biometric identity to do a challenge authentication against the network. So regardless of whatever the primary mechanism for access is, be it using password, keys, whatever have you, if you need to recover your information, you turn up to a point of presence, an office that represents our network, something like a post office or a police station. They have you know, a biometric ID system there. So this may even be the place where you first registered your account. So they know you're supposed to be there. There's a geographical point of security. They know you are there. There's a point of presence part of security. So if someone is going to come and hack it and try and see your account, they're going to have to walk into the location where you first registered and try and hijack it right then and there. Then they have to go through the authentication procedure. So is it a thumb scan, is it a face print, is it both or all of the above? Do you have a key and a password and a PIN number? Point being that when you turn up there, you do your face print, you use your thumbprint to hash the face print. That stays within the machine that actually does the recording of that information, which, yes, again, we would like to be a node on the database. But we're not transmitting the information. That information never needs leave the unit that actually did the investigation. So long as you can represent that information in that, that information in a manner that can be challenged, um, um, well, you know, uh, challenge authentication, you send the impression of that over the network, ask for a response, and again, in what is largely a, a key pair system, it sends back a yes and grants you access to the system. When, where that becomes meaningful is, Take something like your mobile phone and you use it as your secondary authentication device uh, for the benefit of the guys on the internet if they're still there. The uh, Intel TrueKey stuff, very good. It's got uh, facial recognition, thumbprint recognition. It can be integrated with the Windows Hello and the 3D infrared cameras. And it's a database for storing passwords. And the functionality matches up very nicely. What they are doing and the way we store the data is a very functional method for achieving 
uh, a state where all your private data can stay inside the database and never needs to come out again. You don't need to have your keys, your private key with you on a USB in your pocket. You don't need to have it locked away in a drawer at home. It stays in the network. And when you want to access it, use a dynamic mechanism like biometric identity. Um, I think that's the main commentary. Uh, you've certainly got the functional bits of what we're trying to do. Let's do questions quickly and a uh, little bit of chit chat afterwards and see which direction people want to go in. Yeah, let's get the pizza out. So, another guy like the back and smell the pizza. Um, <laughs> vegetarians on that end, uh, there's also a margarita for those who want to come up with that. So, grab some pizza then. Thanks for the patience.